This is David Beeson welcoming you to chapter 73 of A History of England, in which we talk about the slide into Britain's biggest and last war with France. You'll remember that as well as being humiliated by defeat, burdened with huge debt and with a military weakened by years of cost-cutting, Britain had emerged from the American War badly isolated, without enough allies for another major conflict. That was another of the problems Pitt's government set out to solve. There were lots of wars going on in Europe, making it fertile ground for anyone seeking military alliances. Russia under Catherine II, or Catherine the Great as you're more likely to know her, and Austria under Joseph II had both gone to war with the Turks of the Ottoman Empire in 1788. Incidentally, it was that war with the Turks that first gave Russia its Black Sea coast, seas from the Ottoman Empire, including the Crimea, which has been such a flashpoint in recent years. With Russian forces elsewhere engaged, Sweden attacked the country, but discovered it had miscalculated. Russia pulled its forces out of the Turkish war, leaving the Austrians to get a pasting, and crushed the Swedes. Denmark then courageously threatened to join in on Russia's side against Sweden, but Britain, together with Prussia, prepared to intervene without actually doing it. The British ambassador to Denmark then visited the Swedish court and promised British support. That rather annoyed Pitt, who hadn't authorised the offer, but it turned out to be an inspired move since Denmark backed down and Sweden recovered, giving Britain, and Pitt in particular, as well as Prussia, an easy win without firing a shot. Taking advantage of Austrian misfortunes with the Turks, the Austrian Netherlands, essentially today's Belgium and Luxembourg, demanded independence. Holland and Prussia proposed to recognise it. Britain rather liked having a buffer of Austrian territory between France and Holland, and backed Austria. Leopold II, who had followed his brother Joseph II onto the Austrian throne, called on Britain to mediate. It did so and came up with a compromise solution that left the territory Austrian, though with some concessions to local demands. Austria then made peace with the Ottomans. According to Elaine Fitzherbert, ambassador to Holland, previously isolated Britain was now incontestably in possession of the balance of Europe. Meanwhile, Spain had tried to reassert its rights to the whole of the Pacific seaboard of America, based on a decree issued by the Pope in the 15th century, a decree not recognised by anyone else but Portugal, the other beneficiary. In fact, the far northwest of America, Alaska, was then Russian. Further south, Britain extended its Canadian possessions across the continent to the Pacific. Spain decided to take forceful action, seizing some British ships and arresting their crews. Fortunately for Britain, Pitt's investment in the navy had left the country strongly placed to enforce its will. Truculent at first, Spain saw the wisdom of discretion when Britain prepared its warships for action at sea. The Spanish recognised British rights in the Pacific, releasing the sea's ships and crews. Another win without resourcing to force. Pitt's colleague Lord Auckland wrote to him to say, There never was a business better conducted or better concluded, 
and there never was a moment in which our country held such preeminency among nations. Britain was rapidly regaining its international status of before the American War. Even so, not everything went Pitt's way. He was rightly proud of having helped establish peace between the Ottomans, Austria, Prussia, Holland, Denmark and Sweden. But he wanted to cement the whole arrangement into a lasting structure for peace for the whole continent. That, though, meant Russia also agreeing to peace with Turkey and handing back its gains, which it simply wasn't prepared to do. Pitt once more made the Navy ready to send ships to the Baltic and to the Black Sea. He thought Britain's revived friendship with Prussia would provide ground forces if it came to war with Russia, though, as it happens, Berlin wasn't so keen on that idea. Sadly for Pitt, nor were many people back in Britain. The Black Sea coast? Why, many asked, would Britain go to war and with Europe's biggest power, Russia, over something so distant and so remote from British interests? Given that he was on a roll of recent victories, it must have come as a shock to Pitt that when this initiative to secure Russian compliance, the final piece in his complex jigsaw for European peace, came to the House of Commons, he was defeated. It must have felt like 1784 all over again when he was beaten in Parliament repeatedly over questions that matter to him, such as free trade with Ireland. Even when he was doing so well, he could still be cut down by the Commons. This was 1791. As it happens, although he didn't know it, Pitt's plans for Europe-wide peace were already beyond their sell-by date. It would quickly become clear that a wave was about to hit the continent that would make the worthiest plans for peace irrelevant. In France, the revolution juggernaut was rolling on, crushing all before it. The king made an attempt to escape the country, but was arrested in the little village of Varennes and returned ignominiously to Paris. He was, from now on, confined to the royal palace at the Tuileries. These developments, oddly, strengthened Pitt's hand domestically. Charles James Fox was still leader of the opposition, and Edmund Burke had been a loyal ally for many years. Fox, however, remained a staunch supporter of the French revolutionaries. Burke, on the other hand, in his Reflections on the Revolution in France, described those revolutionaries as the ablest architects of ruin that had hitherto existed in the world. The two men fell out irrevocably. This was the beginning of a deep rift in the opposition from which Pitt could only gain. He wanted to stand well back from the troubles in France, especially given that there were problems in Britain too. Over recent decades, there had been a considerable acceleration in a process that had massively hit rural life over the previous couple of centuries. In earlier times, smallholders could live, or at least subsist, from a small plot of land around their home, given that they enjoyed the right to graze animals on the common land of the village. That's land available to everyone and belonging to no one. But... More modern agricultural methods required extensive land holdings cultivated by large landowners. 
Special Acts of Parliament allowed enclosures, the process by which common land was fenced off and sold. Towards the end of the 18th century, there was a big increase in such acts, and smallholders whose ancestors had scraped a living from their own property and access to the common were driven into destitution or employment on miserable wages as agricultural workers. The alternative was to move to the emerging industrial cities where work was available but again at poor wages and with no protection in case of illness, injury or old age. The contrast between the lavish style of life of those who enjoyed inherited wealth, often extended by the enclosures, or those who made fortunes in the new businesses or from imperial holdings in places like India, and a mass of impoverished and maltreated industrial or agricultural workers inevitably led to unrest. The most radical turned to Tom Paine, the Englishman who had supported both the American and French revolutions, and whose book, The Rights of Man, had become a bestseller. Without the desperation of hunger to drive it, a revolutionary movement in Britain never grew to the unstoppable level that had overtaken France. It met serious repression at both national and local level, with Pitt's government using anti-sedition laws against it, and ten counties calling out the armed force of the militia, though it turned a blind eye to anti-revolutionary groups using violence themselves when they attacked radicals or destroyed printing presses. And there were plenty of these groups, sometimes with significant support from leading figures. Hannah Moore, for instance, had made a name for herself as a writer of children's literature, but now she turned a pen into a weapon against the radicals, declaiming that a Democrat was one who likes to be governed by a thousand tyrants and yet can't bear a king. Democracy was still a dirty word to most people at the time. If Britain was able to hold its rebellious forces in check, in France, power was moving steadily in a more radical direction. The revolutionary government proved unable to address the fundamental problems of the economy, and the poor remained as hungry as ever. The most revolutionary elements kept fanning discontent. More moderate revolutionaries found themselves sidelined and forced out of positions of authority. Violence was growing too. In one of the most staggering events, the September Massacres of 1791, a mob which included members of the security forces dragged prisoners from Parisian prisons and executed them, or more accurately, murdered them. Estimates of the number of deaths vary from 1100 to 1600. Nearly three quarters were non-political prisoners, including common criminals. There were women and children among the dead too. The main explanation for this kind of action seems to be widely held conspiracy theories about secret internal enemies working against the revolution. The mood was made still worse by the fact that a visible external enemy, composed of the Austrians and the Prussians, were massing on France's borders. Europe's crowned heads didn't like to see an old monarchy like France's successfully overthrown. It might give their own subjects unfortunate ideas. Austria and Prussia together issued the Declaration of Pilnitz, calling for the restoration of the French royal family to the throne and power. 
Let's not forget that the royal family included the Queen, Marie Antoinette, who was the sister of the Austrian Emperor. Much of the pressure for the declaration came from the French aristocrats who'd fled into exile. That heightened the suspicion back at home that what was happening was plotting by French traitors who had fled abroad. For the radicals, they needed to be rooted out by force if necessary. On the 20th of April 1792, France declared war on Austria and Prussia. Pause for the sound of an ominous bell tolling. Sorry, I'll work on that before the next time I need a bell. It was the start of a war that would last the generation and devastate Europe. The response was immediate, with its enemies invading France and winning a series of quick victories. That, of course, only heightened the paranoia in Paris. That rose dramatically when the enemy commander, the Duke of Brunswick, issued the so-called Brunswick Manifesto. It warned the French that if the royal family was harmed, French civilians would be harmed right back. Unsurprisingly, that only raised tensions a further, not sure to in Paris. The people stormed the royal palace of the Tuileries, killing some of the Swiss guards protecting it, something Swiss people I've personally met resent to this very day. The king was finally removed entirely from power, and the first French Republic was proclaimed. Then, to everyone's astonishment, the new French army won a staggering victory over the Prussians at Valmy. That took the pressure of invasion of France, but any hope of a successful counteroffensive was quickly lost in a series of further defeats. They, in turn, pushed the nation further towards the radicals. The group known as the Jacobins, led by men such as Robespierre, Danton and Marat, took power. They set out to bring citizen Louis Capet, previously known as King Louis XVI, to trial. Brought to trial at that time was nearly synonymous with executed, with only a lapse of time, often not a long time, between the two. Louis was executed on the 21st of January 1793. Up until then, William Pitt had succeeded in keeping Britain neutral. But that wasn't going to last much longer. His role in history was about to change fundamentally, but that we'll start looking at next time. Many thanks for listening.